On this episode of Serverless Chats, I speak with Forrest Brazil about serverless CICD for the enterprise. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 14. Hi, everyone. I'm Jeremy Daly, and you're listening to Serverless Chats. This week, I'm chatting with Forrest Brazil. Hey, Forrest, thanks for being here. Hey, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. It's great to be on the show. So you are an AWS serverless hero, as well as a senior cloud architect at Trek 10. And I think many people in the serverless community, as well as the underground technology rap scene, know who you are. Um, but why don't you explain to the listeners a little bit about your background and what Trek 10 does? Sure thing. Well, and I think the underground tech rap community is basically just me. So that's a small pond there. But yeah, so my name is Forrest Brazil. I'm a senior cloud architect at Trek 10. Trek 10 is an AWS advanced consulting partner. That means we work with AWS technologies. We focus primarily on the cloud native side of things. So think serverless, IoT, basically anything you can build while using the best practices that AWS wants you to use. I spend a lot of time helping clients put things like that together. Also spend a fair amount of time being community facing, love to uh, educate and advocate for serverless technologies wherever I can. That's why I do the serverless hero thing. And uh, it's great to be uh, here with you now. Awesome. And I think I could probably talk to you about, I think I have talked to you about pretty much everything uh, that serverless uh, has. But uh, I think what I want to do today is focus more on uh, the sort of CI/CD process for enterprises, um, and maybe I, I know you've done a lot of stuff in that space. You and and uh, and and Jared Short have, and and maybe you can start by telling us sort of what's the difference between sort of your typical CI/CD process and one that involves serverless now. Sure. Ultimately, there's not necessarily that much difference. I mean, the underlying goal is the same. I've got code. I want to get it off my laptop. I want to get it into production and serving my users as safely and quickly and efficiently as I can. And uh, that goal doesn't change because you're suddenly using different infrastructure or less infrastructure, hopefully. But uh, I think where it gets a little bit interesting for serverless is you all of a sudden start having the cloud become part of your software development lifecycle a whole lot earlier than you may have been used to it in the past. So you don't write this code locally and then you throw it over the wall and it gets deployed on some infrastructure that you're not thinking about. So much of your development process now actually is tied up in that configuration and figuring out permissions, thinking about latency at the cloud level, right? You're simply not getting a very realistic picture of what your application is going to look like if you're trying to mock all that and develop it locally. So we see people trying to figure out, well, how can I get this app into the cloud, test it earlier on in my lifecycle? How can I do that collaboratively? Or how can I do that without stepping on other members of my team who may be working on different features, perhaps in a shared account? That's where we try to put some best practices together that make things easier for serverless developers. Right. Great. Okay. So why don't we we start talking about it specifically with enterprises then? Um, so you've worked with a lot of enterprises. I've worked with a lot of enterprises. We know that um, there are certainly challenges facing enterprises when moving just to the cloud, let alone um, you know moving to serverless. But but just from a CI/CD perspective, what are what are some of these challenges that uh, enterprises face? I think anytime you're in a large organization where you're contending with multiple teams, teams that have different priorities, different 
technology stacks that they're comfortable with. The biggest challenge you face is just that despite the temptation, there's really not a one-size-fits-all solution that you can impose. So we see a lot of these central cloud teams now, and a lot of times they have a, a cute name like the Cumulonimbus team or something like that. You can always spot them a mile away. Uh, you, you see these teams come in and they say, well, we got to solve the CICD problem. They've been given that problem to solve, and understandably, it's a problem, right? Code is not getting to production fast enough, or, or it is, and there's all this shadow IT happening, right? So people People want to find a way to get around that. They give this task to a central IT team. They come up with some great solution that involves code pipeline or something like that. And uh, they put it in production and they say, hey, everyone come use this. And they're rather shocked to discover when no one uses it. And the reason for that, as I said, is that you've got teams that uh, all want to do things their own way, uh, and they view the centrally imposed CICD standards as being just another thing that are stopping them from getting code to production quickly, which of course is exactly the opposite of what CICD is supposed to do. And so what you have happen then is the, the shadow IT problem just gets worse, and your development teams continue to work around your central team, and uh, you frankly, wind up with a worse problem than you had in the first place. So when you're working with an enterprise, then the CICD challenge is how do you put something together that solves the centralization problems you have, the governance problems, where you really do need uh, some amount of rigor around who can deploy to production, when it can happen, and what those deployments look like. And then you marry that to the also very real necessity for dev teams to be able to accomplish their work the way they want to. So that's the, the problem that we try to solve. Yeah, and I think you you get this other problem where nobody knows who owns the process, right? Especially if you have certain teams working on, on different components, um, you know, that throw it over the wall sort of DevOps mentality in a fast paced serverless environment anyways, doesn't really work anymore, right? That's exactly right. And it's not that it can't work. It's that it doesn't work the way people expect that it will, because they tend to think about these problems at the level of a team. And once you move into a large enterprise, again, the, the moving pieces uh, rapidly increase in number, and you've got to find a way to coordinate those people together. So what is a typical or maybe let's say a basic um, CICD pipeline look like? And, and, uh, and maybe we can call this the Hello World version, which I think most people read a blog post, they see this laid out, um, they, they, they know what that typical or they, they maybe feel comfortable with that typical deployment process, um, but why, why doesn't that work in enterprises? Sure. The, the Hello World pipeline, as you call it, would involve some combination of a few different steps. Obviously, you want to start with a source control repository. You want to push your code to source control. After that happens, you want to run some number of build tests on it. You want to run your unit tests. You want to do your linting, things that happen statically on the code, perhaps static analysis if you're doing some security stuff. And then you move on from there to a deployment phase where you want to actually pick up that code and you want to push it out into some sort of non-production environment where you can test it. And people have all kinds of different environments. They like to, to involve there, whether it's dev, whether it's staging or QA, non-prod, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and then at some point that code will be validated. Ideally, you'll run some kind of smoke tests or black box tests, end-to-end -end tests on the deployed uh, environment. And once that's out there, then you will want to deploy to production. And a lot of people like to have some kind of a gate, some kind of approval there where someone has to manually give a thumbs up and say, yes, I agree. The automated tests look good and this is ready to go out. Uh, that's the, the hello world idea. I think people see that laid out and they say this is going to be great. Um, the challenges then that you run into with that in the enterprise, of course, you've got, as I said, different teams, but you've also got different branching strategies. You've got these problems where, oh, 
I had a problem uh, that I need to hotfix to production immediately. And my boss is telling me I simply don't have time to go through all this normal process. So how can I just circumvent all that? Because the business reality is I need to push it out now. That's, you know, all of the, uh, uh, the hypotheticals that you've put down on paper sound great until you are at three in the morning and you really need that uh, IAM permission to be corrected all at once. And I, I don't think that's a common case where somebody has to rush a hot fix out to production, is it? Come on now. No, uh, although, you know, I, I've seen cases where people put these branching strategies together where you go to master and then you have uh, like staging branches and production branches above that. And one of the challenges people have there, of course, is they want to go do hot fixes and uh, they, they hot fix to production. Then you got to figure out a way to, to merge those branches back down onto each other. And you very quickly end up with uh, a a true version of your code, which is deployed in prod and then several different uh half in progress releases in different other environments and it rapidly collapses in on itself and no one knows the state of any of the environments and, and that of, of course is worse than what people had at the start definitely um all right so let's talk about repositories for a second because this is another thing um there's the age-old debate mono repo versus multiple repos and so forth um and i've seen this a lot and i and i'm sure you've seen this a lot where the sort of the the strategy they choose that the enterprise chooses for their their repositories in terms of you know multi versus mono repo um, that can also be a challenge when when developing a CI/CD pipeline as well. I think that's true. I don't see a lot of organizations going with a true mono repo. I mean, nobody's Google, and I think people understand that. So you don't see an entire organization that's putting literally everything in the same repository. So when people talk realistically about mono repo versus multi-repo or micro-repo or whatever you want to say, they're typically thinking about it in the context of some smaller problem that they have their heads around. So for this particular application or service that I'm designing, should I have a single repository or should I be splitting this up somehow by pipeline or by microservice or component of my app? That's really what the question is. And I think maybe that terminology gets confusing. What I've come down on, I guess, and I've spent a lot of time trying to get my head around this, I... <laughs> Multi-repos are great, uh, and it a lot of times makes sense to have a repo per pipeline. If you have multiple pipelines out of a single repository, that can get confusing and hard to manage. But where people struggle is they try to break that down too much, and what they've done is they've created dependencies that span multiple repositories. So if you repeatedly find yourself having to encompass two or three different repositories or more in a single feature that you're pushing out, you're probably creating problems for yourself that you could solve if you had all that stuff in one repository to begin with. Uh, so I see people doing things like trying to create these orchestration systems on top of multiple repositories and on top of multiple pipelines just to try to control when dependencies go out. And, and that just, it's it's adding an extra level of complexity that I don't think needs to be there. You know, don't be afraid of, of Git merge and merge conflicts. That's actually a protection the repository is providing for you. Uh, and when you get away from that, you you just, you have to start reinventing wheels that I don't think are necessary. Yeah, and I, I like that idea too about being very careful about having dependencies or too much coupling between multiple repos because that's always that problem where you're launching into a new environment or into a staging environment or something and you need to launch each deploy or each pipeline needs to run in order. Otherwise, the other ones won't be able to access bits of information from it. Exactly. Um, all right, so, so what about feature branches? Because that's another thing um, that I think helps, especially when you when you go to a smaller or to a, to a um, smaller repos, maybe not the micro repos, but you know, packaging individual services. Um, when you're launching different features, 
to have those separate. What, what are your thoughts on feature branches? I, I'm a fan of feature branches. I think that in my experience, it's the pattern that is best suited for enabling teams at your standard development shop, as opposed to something like trunk-based development. So when we talk about feature branches, we're, we're talking about a flow that would look something like, I make a branch off of master or off of my stable branch. I check that out. I uh, commit some amount of code that solves a problem for me. I test it. And then when I'm ready, I pull request that branch to master. It goes through code review from the team. And then once that code is merged into master, at that point, it's off to the races and it's being sent through whatever staging QA accounts and it's on its way to production. And that process hopefully happens very quickly. It's it's mostly automated and it's not like it's sitting in limbo off of master for days, but it's, it's not uh, necessarily an environment where you're creating a lot of bespoke release branches off of master. It's very much uh, once I merge this feature in, then I'm, then I'm ready to go to prod or I should be ready to go to prod if the tests pass. Seen that work well for teams because it lets different developers collaborate, and it also lets you, if you need to, to make those hot fixes directly to master without a lot of additional fooling around and without worrying about having, you know, do they also need to be merged into existing releases that I'm adding on to? Right. It just seems to work well for a lot of, especially small to medium-sized teams, uh, when they understand their code base pretty well. Yeah, and that's also, you know, sort of a one of those processes where uh, when you're developing using feature branches, it's good to break up. Yeah, have very modular code in there so that you're not always overwriting the index.js file or some some main handler file where you've got some layers of code in there where things can be manipulated without uh, constantly having those conflicts, like you said, when you're when you're merging multiple branches. Um, so then before we move on to the next thing, I, I just wanted to talk quickly about some of the common pitfalls with, uh, with CICD. Because I know, I mean, I've seen this before, especially when you have... Um, when you have multiple teams that are merging uh, into uh, into some sort of centralized repository or centralized um, process, that you get these QA teams that are constantly getting updates. And, and is there a way to sort of mitigate against that? So as you have all these different teams, that the QA teams can kind of stay on top of what they're what they're testing, as opposed to always getting new updates. Yeah, so you're talking about like release uh, cadences and things like that, and and every yeah. every team is different here, and their their process is different, and it, a lot depends on the maturity of where they are and and what they already have from a testing perspective. Um, I I think that it it does make sense to have a single staging environment where things come together before prod, but it's important to not mistake that environment for production. No matter how similar you make it and how automated it is, you won't really know how the app's performing until you get it to prod and contest it there. I'm a big fan of you know, blue-green releases for that reason and rolling things out that aren't live yet, but that are in the production environment so that you can run tests on the infrastructure that's going to be serving your uh, users before they've actually had a chance to see it. And you can get obviously more complicated with that with uh, feature flags and, and canary releases as well. But that's that's a, a whole discipline that I think a lot of teams uh, are just not ready for yet. It's it's not something I'm I'm seeing in most places. There's a lot of work to do before we get there where teams are comfortable with that. All right, cool. All right, so speaking about all this work to do, uh, you wrote a very good post um, earlier this year called Enterprise CICD on AWS, A Pragmatic Approach. Uh, and I really liked it. thought it was really interesting how you sort of split these things up. So um, let's talk about that. Let's talk about this pragmatic approach to CICD. Uh, and in there, you mention, you know, you run into this Conway's law problem where every organization is different. Uh, every organization does things differently. So um, maybe we can talk about that. What, what is your pragmatic approach? Sure. So at some point, 
designing a process like this for a large enough enterprise is almost entirely an organizational problem and a human problem rather than a technical problem. The technical challenges are relatively easy to solve with the tooling we have today. I can set up a pipeline and I can set up approval gates, no problem, and I can figure out a way to pass artifacts back and forth. Big deal. It's been done a million times. But when I have a whole bunch of different teams that have different technology stacks, as I said early on in the show, uh, that all have their own processes for how they like to get to production, but I also have some need for central governance and a need to control who actually has access to deploy things in prod, it gets more challenging. And the way that seems to work for a lot of folks to tackle this is to split build and release. So when I say split build and release, I mean you're taking the build piece of your pipeline, which a lot of times maps onto the CI, the continuous integration half of CI CD. That would be something that typically is very tightly controlled by an individual dev team. So they would be using a source control repository of their choice. Could be GitHub, could be code commit, probably not code commit, let's be honest, but I suppose it could be. Uh, and and uh, you know whatever they're choosing there, that'll be hooked into a build pipeline of their choice, which could be could be Jenkins based, could be code pipeline, you know, GitLab, who knows. Uh, and then that will run build tests that they write, unit tests they write, it'll run their code coverage stuff. Uh, they'll probably have to hit certain standards that are set by the organization in terms of, hey, you have to have this percent of code coverage, you have to uh, have this sort of security scanning that's running on your code, but they get to choose how they how they implement that and what kind of pipeline they put it in. And I, I find that most dev teams now, you know, have that capacity or, or want to have that capacity to be able to put something like that together. The output of that build pipeline, that build process is quite simply put one or more deployment artifacts. It's a deployable chunk that can be put out into production into other accounts. And uh, that's something that could go into Artifactory, it could go into S3, just needs to go somewhere where your release pipeline can access it. The release pipeline then is the piece that makes more sense to be owned by a central team. And the central team then would take care of actually doing the code promotion across accounts. So their pipeline would be the one that spans, you know, not just the development account, but staging, production, QA, whatever. They would have the permissions to deploy into production. They would have the approval gates on there. They would have the timing in terms of whether there needs to be some kind of a maintenance window before something gets rolled out. They can own all of that. Uh, is this you know, the healthiest possible paradigm in a perfect world, right, where you have build and release split that way instead of the dev team owning things themselves all the way to production? Probably not, but this is actually the way most large enterprises function and will function for the foreseeable future, is that there's got to be a little bit more governance around who can do what. Uh, and it also takes some of that need to juggle all those accounts away from the individual dev team. They can focus on what they do best. Your SRE team can focus on what they do best. And uh, this seems to work fairly well. So then for something like feature pipelines, would that, would that be on the build side? Would you deploy your own feature pipelines there? Or is that something that also go to the release side? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, that would definitely be on the build side. You would want them to be able to uh, spin up and test their own infrastructure before the code gets merged to the master branch. Again, envisioning this feature to master kind of uh, flow for your source control. So uh, you can have your central team help there by providing some scaffolding, possibly even something that gets vended out at account creation time. So having really good process around how you create AWS accounts and how you seed them with uh, tooling and processes for people is a really big part of this. But yeah, having that ability for people to push code and have it spin up a feature branch should be in control of the dev team. All right, and you mentioned security, like some static analysis and, and things like that, but really where does the where does the security fall? Does it sort of fall on both sides here? 
Yes, absolutely. And that's where I mentioned, uh, even if the dev team has some control over what tooling they're running there, uh, and of course, the dev team, they're writing the code, they know better than anybody, you know, what they should be looking for when it comes to, to certain security things. There do need to be standards across the org, and there needs to be uh, communication in terms of what's getting looked at. So from an AWS perspective, you know, things like stars and IAM policies, there there needs to be uh, policies around, hey, eyeballs are on this. And, you know, that if, if we're seeing this show up in a code review, there needs to be a conversation conversation happening. And that's just something that you work with the organization over time to develop that excellence. All right. So what about what about testing? So you mentioned unit testing and linting uh, on the build side, but is there more testing that would be done sort of on the release side as well? Absolutely. Big fan of any kind of automated smoke testing, black box, end-to-end -end testing you can do. In fact, I think that's a uh, you can't go to production without it. So when that infrastructure is deployed, whether it's QA, staging, prod, even and especially in prod, you want to have tests that run as part of your release pipeline immediately following that, that are doing deep health checks, that are you know provisioning test records, making sure you can get all the way back to the database and back, things like that. Uh, and you know that's, that's just a, a, a no-brainer. The challenge there too is uh, those tests, you want them to be run and deployed by your release team in these various accounts, but you actually want them to be written by your dev team because they're the only ones who actually know how the application is supposed to behave. So I, I built things in the past where you'll have a standard, an interface that's set up between your build and release team where the dev team will, for example, let's say you're working on a code build, code pipeline type of an environment. Your dev team will go ahead and write some scripts that launch their end-to-end uh, -end tests. So it could be, for example, Cypress if you're using uh, that tool for end-to-end -end testing. And uh, they will go ahead and create build specs that call their, their Cypress tests. And those will be stored in a known location in the repository. So by the time your release artifacts get out to release, uh, the release pipelines, which are standardized, will know to go look in that location, find whatever test files have been defined, and run those end-to-end -end tests. And that seems to work well. So you you mentioned approval gates in there, and this is something. Um, so again, I think we we are we are talking about continuous delivery, not continuous deployment when we talk about CD um, in this context anyway. So uh, I, I don't know how many organizations are confident enough to just automatically, once they pass the automated test, to go ahead and have those uh, deployed to production. Um, so obviously we're putting in approval gates here, and that's a human function that needs to happen. Um, so what about multiple gates, though? That seems to be something that people look for. I think more people think they want that than actually want that. And what you're talking about, I think, is something like a nuclear key approval. You know, so envision the the two guys in the nuclear command center, each of whom has their hand on one key, and both keys have to be turned for the missile to launch. People sometimes think they want that for a software deployment process where you need two individual people who probably belong to separate IAM approval groups or whatever uh, to be able to to approve something. And you can certainly implement that in code pipeline. I think I've got a, a blog post out there somewhere that explains how you can do it. But over time, that seems to be a little bit frustrating for folks. It, it actually does slow them down a bit. And uh, what seems to be better in most of those cases is to have a trusted group of people who can approve, uh, but then also just to maintain really good auditing. So if something does go wrong, you, you know what happened and you can go back and address it. So I also see that sort of being like um, uh, helpful for escalating a problem, right? Because we would only fail a build or we'd only not approve something if there was something seriously wrong with it, right? So is escalation another sort of uh, reason to have these approval gates? 
I think so. Escalation is another big topic, and we could probably spend a whole podcast talking about that. Uh, in general, and especially in these big orgs where you just have huge multiplications of AWS accounts now being vented out through AWS organizations, or there's even people who have outgrown the capability of, of AWS organizations. How do you how do you keep track of all these accounts? How do you figure out who can uh, be escalated to access different functionality inside of them? You know, uh, and is there such a thing as a central team that has to have eyes on all of that, or can you delegate that permission to trusted people inside of the individual uh, dev teams? That, that's a question that more and more folks are starting to answer. There absolutely are ways you can do that with escalation. We actually do that here at Trek 10. We've got a nice little Slack bot that lets us uh, temporarily attach policies to our to our roles to be able to deploy things in production for, for various accounts. Uh, but I, th I think that's a little bit of a separate topic. Okay. All right. Well, so let's move on to tooling, right? So you mentioned, um, you know, obviously the, uh, the, the, code build and, and, and code or different code repositories, GitHub, Bitbucket, things like that. I mean, obviously that's part of it, having that. Um, but then code build and all these other tools that do it. Um, so first of all, let's start with this. Can we use standard build tools to deploy our serverless applications like the, you know, Travis and Circle CI and Jenkins and those sort of things? Absolutely can. People do it every day. However, if you are really getting into the serverless mindset, which is I don't want to maintain infrastructure that's not uh, directly relevant to me and my business, it would seem that a massive piece of infrastructure that would be nice to not have to worry about anymore is your build server. I think all of us have spent time troubleshooting a giant Jenkins instance that's been uh, running out of disk space because of one rogue job that's affecting everything else, right? That's that's not a problem we should have to have in the serverless world. We want to be using tools like uh, code build, which you know reliably gives me an ephemeral build job and it doesn't affect any other jobs that are running at the same time. And uh, if it goes away, I just spin up another one and I only pay for what I consume, right? Those are all great serverless fundamentals that we want to be working with. So yeah, you can you can provision any old build server and launch your serverless apps. But I think it's much better if you can to try to find a way to deploy your serverless app serverlessly. And there's more and more tools now that are that are letting you do that. And and so what about for uh, for people that are starting to move to serverless uh, or starting to migrate parts of their application? Um, you know, would you suggest that they rebuild their existing CI/CD pipelines using these tools? I mean, I, I would think that some of these legacy tools would sort of be slowing down the process. They 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 can, and I, I do recommend that wherever possible. It's ultimately just a really long process, though. Usually, uh, we—it's interesting. We see a lot of organizations now that are a few years into their cloud journey, but for them, that means that they have five-year-old tooling that, in some respects, is sort of legacy now. Right. So they're that that first wave of cloud folks, and perhaps they've developed this large, multifarious Jenkins instance that's serving an awful lot of cloud teams, and they're outgrowing that, and they're running into all kinds of problems with it. But at the same time, it took a lot of years to get people actually on board and. Use Using that and using probably shared tools and libraries and plugins that are accessible to everybody. So it's no joke. You can't just unwind that overnight, uh, but it can be done. And part of the way that can be done, as I was saying earlier, is trying to hand some of that control back to the individual teams so you don't make a central team a bottleneck for that in the first place. Yeah. So what about some of these tools that are coming out that are specific for serverless? So there's C.run, you know, something like Zite or uh, Architect, and I think Begin is part of the Architect framework, and serverless.com now has their own. Um, I mean, I like these tools because I think they're great for small jobs, um, but what are, you, what are your thoughts? I, I, do, they, do they fit into the enterprise world? 
So I, you know, a lot of these tools are early on in the process, and I don't want to speak individually to them right now. I, some of them I've seen do great things. I'm, I'm excited about some of what Begin seems to be offering, although I don't think it's quite released yet. Uh, I, I think the important lesson to take away from those tools right now, because they're they're so young and so early, so who knows where exactly they'll go on an individual basis. But I, I think the important thing to take away is that this is obviously a big problem that's not been adequately solved yet, at least not at the 80% level. Uh, and that's why so many of these tools are starting to proliferate because people very rightly are saying, oh, it's it's challenging, it's difficult to be able to uh, put together a reasonable CICD pipeline that works for my developers and works for serverless without a lot of frustration. So they're, they're trying to automate uh, some of that away. And we'll see how that goes over the next few years if more of those features are just available natively in the cloud providers or if one of these tools really takes off. But I think we would be foolish to dismiss the obvious gap that there currently exists for developers to be able to do this more easily. Right. And so you, I mean, basically they're not, I don't think any organization, no matter what we build or what someone builds, there's going to be a turnkey solution for enterprises. No. I mean, what do they say about enterprise software? It's uh, solving the problems of today by creating the problems of tomorrow. (laughs) Uh, I I think that's probably true for any kind of CICD system as well, whether you build it yourself or whether you buy it from somebody. But uh, it's just because it's an organizational thing at that level, as I said, it's always going to be growing and changing. There will always be interesting new challenges to solve. All right. So another tool that is out there was built by you and Trek 10, um, which is this quick start CICD for AWS. Um, So I'm not sure this is the best thing to um, sort of walk through step by step on a podcast. If someone's listening uh, in their car or mowing their lawn, this might not be the easiest thing to digest. Um, But maybe we could just go over it quickly because I do like uh, I, I do like how it's set up. I do like what what it does, all the different features it provides. So um, do you want to just kind of walk us through it at a high level? Yeah, let me give you the elevator pitch for it. Maybe that'll help. So this grew out of a couple of different projects. Well, really, I, I guess multiple projects we've been doing for various clients at Trek 10. And we were doing exactly what I've been describing over the course of this podcast, which is going into enterprises and helping them figure out how to set up that feature branch-based workflow and how to get serverless apps deployed using these ephemeral services like CodeBuild and get them pushed out across multiple AWS accounts. And we were solving some of the same problems over and over again and had all this cloud formation that we were using. And so we said, hey, let's let's spruce this up and let's make it available for everybody. And and that's what the quick start is. Um, Some of the things that the quick start does, I think probably won't necessarily be uh, needed long-term as AWS continues to roll out more features. But right now, a lot of this you you can't do natively today. So you do need some additional cloud formation to come along and help you with that. The biggest thing there is uh, we we really wanted to enable people to dynamically create feature branch deployments. So as I was, I think, saying earlier, when I push code to a feature branch as a developer with a serverless app on AWS, I want that feature branch to automatically spin up for me a deployment of my app that's namespaced according to my branch, doesn't conflict with anybody else. So if I need to, I can have 20 developers all in the same account, all deploying, nobody steps on anybody else. Harder to do uh, in the serverless world than you would think, but at the same time, it's also very cost-effective because you're not paying for that infrastructure unless you're actively using it. So we built some Lambda and some SNS that uh, spawns those dynamic pipelines for you. And you can check that all out. It's open source. There is also the ability for you to promote those things cross account. And, uh, you know, it's it's 
it's basic. It's it's got the full end to end life cycle in there, uh, no doubt. As you work through this, if you decide to work through this, you're going to find things you'll want to tweak to your use case. Uh, there's the concept in there of a shared services account. So we actually take the pipeline infrastructure and we segregate that off into its own AWS environment, and then it reaches out and passes roles cross account to be able to deploy in dev and staging and prod. And that's a very best practice thing to do. Some people want to actually create multiple shared services accounts, or sometimes they call them tools accounts. One that has production access and one that does not. Uh, but ultimately, you know, you can play with that. The goal is you want to make it easy for your devs to deploy and uh, spawning those pipelines on their behalf seems to be a good way to do that. Now, when you're building um, like a development version or something that's launched to a, a different environment, obviously with serverless, we usually have you know, some naming conventions in there for functions and for DynamoDB tables and things like that. Um, so are you generating, are you rebuilding the artifacts at every step here? Or is there some way that you're creating artifacts that can then be promoted? In, in this case, uh, and this is me casting my mind back a few months, so apologies for uh, any inaccuracies here, but I, I think in this case, we did end up with a separate set of artifacts for uh, the feature branches, and, and then we rebuilt the artifacts when you push to master, but then that same set of artifacts is used across all the accounts you promote once you merge code into the master branch. Uh, and definitely, if you split up your tools accounts between you know uh, dev and your prod workflow, you would, you would have two sets of artifacts that were generated. I don't know that that's necessarily a big deal, but uh, if it is, of course, you'd want to go with a different approach. Okay, great. All right. So maybe we can wrap this up by, um, you know, giving some advice. So for the enterprise that is looking or is having some trouble with CICD or looking to go serverless, I'm asking you multiple questions here, but let's say for the enterprise looking to go serverless, uh, has some question about their CICD process besides calling Trek 10, what would be your, uh, what would be your best advice? That's a great question. Uh, so obviously call Trek 10, but even before you do that, uh, check out the quick start. You can you can play with that yourself. It'll uh, give you a good feel, I think, for how far you can go on your own. Um, I definitely would recommend trying to use some of the AWS native services if you are in AWS. Um, if you get to where you need something that is a little bit more flexible uh, or something that enables you to work with additional tools uh, that are not natively integrated with the AWS services yet, at that point, I would suggest looking into that build release split that I discussed earlier and that you can find in that Pragmatic Enterprise CICD post. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, I will get that stuff into the show notes. But um, anyways, listen, thank you. This was awesome. Uh, this is certainly a complex topic that we probably could uh, you know, go into detail about and spend hours talking about. Um, but anyways, why don't you, uh, why don't you tell the listeners... Uh, how they can find out more about you. Sure. Well, I'm pretty easy to find. You can find me on Twitter at Forest Brazil, um, also on LinkedIn. Uh, and of course, I, I do write a number of things for the Trek 10 blog. I have a podcast there called Think Faz, F-A-A-S, Functions as a Service. Uh, we've been a little bit lax about putting out episodes of that recently, but we are doing a bunch of live episodes of Think Faz next month at ServerlessConf in New York City. Jeremy, I think you're uh, speaking as well. I am, uh, yes. Yeah, you got a you got a full size talk there, not a not a think fast talk, but uh, yeah. So we'll we'll be putting those out on the podcast here in the coming months. Um, I, I am uh, co chairing the conference this year, so if you have not signed up for Serverless Conf yet, please do that. I would love to see you there. I think it's going to be a great couple of days, and you can hear uh, Jeremy speak on what are you speaking on, Jeremy? Uh, I am speaking on building uh, resilient serverless systems with non serverless components. There you go. I, you don't want to miss that. <laughs> All right. Awesome. All right. Thanks again, Forrest. Absolutely. Thanks, Jeremy. It was a blast.
and that's this week's serverless chat. I want to give a huge thank you to Forrest Brazil for being my guest this week. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 14. For more serverless chats, be sure you subscribe and rate the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or any of your favorite podcast apps. You can also connect with me on Twitter at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you're interested in serverless and want to discover all the great new articles, use cases, and latest innovations from the serverless community, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to chatting with all of you again next week.